You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Welcome one and all to episode 172 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast. I apologize for missing last week because... I usually record on Sunday nights, and <laughs> after packing up Shorehammer, running Shorehammer Sunday, packing it all up, and unloading it all at my house, I basically just left everything in piles, and I'm like, you know what? I've gotten about five and a half hours sleep for the last three nights. I am exhausted. So I went to bed pretty early, and I did not do a podcast. Then I debated, you know what? I'll release a podcast on Tuesday. And then I realized, well, most of you probably wait to see it on Monday, so I'll just keep the Monday schedule, and that's what I did. So this is the first uh, episode after Shorehammer, and um, we had a great time. I had a blast. I got to participate in one of the narratives, which is the Age of Sigmar narrative, and that was very fun. I didn't get to do all three like last year. The 40k narrative was completely sold out, so there's no way for me to join that. And the Thursday narrative was pretty busy, and we ended up not needing a ringer, so I didn't participate. But we had a blast. It was so nice seeing all my friends from literally everywhere, from Utah and Missouri and New York, and even made some new ones, like from Vermont and Pennsylvania and all of that. So it's just, it's always fantastic. I think everybody had a fun time. Before I go any further, I'd like to thank GameMat.eu for supporting the show. Go check them out. They've got STL files. They've got printed mats. They have uh, uh, resin terrain pre-painted. they got a ton of stuff, so you should go check them out. I love GameMat.eu, and we've known them for quite some time. Gosh, it's been six or seven years now I've been dealing with them. I used to do some reviews for their stuff because I discovered them, and I'm like, oh my god, I love this terrain. So I started doing reviews years ago. And then that's just blossomed into them being a podcast a sponsor and Shorehammer sponsor and all of that. So go check them out. They're uh, very, very nice people. And I'm going to mess up his name. It's either Matos or Matosh. I don't know how it's I know how it's spelled. I don't know how it's pronounced. I was corrected one time by a Euro- European when I mentioned that name. And he was like, oh, no, it's pronounced this way. And I don't recall which way it was. I almost think it's supposed to be Matosh. But. Anyway, he's a very nice person, and excuse my American accent for not knowing how to pronounce it, but I also have all of my great Patreon patrons who help keep this show running, keep all of the archived episodes. If you're listening to archived episodes of the last three, three years, that is a lot of information that Podbean is storing for us, and that costs money. So we have to pay for that every year. And the Patreon patrons keep the lights on at the Pemcron Bunker. And I greatly appreciate it. So, what are we talking about tonight? Well, we have two segments. We have a quite lengthy Real Talk with the Pemcron. And this is something brand new that we've never done before. We actually asked the champion of Shorehammer to go over their list and tell us why they took what they did and what their overall strategy was for each unit and how they achieve victory so we will be getting into that i think it's very interesting hopefully you do too i know we don't usually cover lists but this was a special opportunity and if you guys like it please let me know email me whatever and i will gladly do this each year i'll interview the highlander uh winner and that's what we'll do then we also have a pretty funny recording voicemail from our buddy levi and he's just 
asking questions about stuff. He's actually asking about the prices of miniatures and what would happen if they dropped. What would people do? So I don't want to get too far into that because that's what that segment is for. What have I been up to? Well, I finalized the uh, supplement for Brutality. That's out for sale now. And what else? You know what? I actually got third place in the Brutality tournament at Shorehammer. Last year, I got second place. This year, I got third place. We actually, originally, I thought I tied for second because the winner had 33 points and then I had 31 points total and then another guy had 31 points total. So I gave him second place and I took third place because obviously I don't have two second place trophies. But then afterwards, he realized that he did not, before he even knew what the winner got, he's like, oh, by the way, I screwed myself on two points. And I'm like, really, why? And he goes, well, I killed two of their leaders in two of the games, and I never wrote down the extra point for killing the leader. And I'm like, oh, well, you know what? That actually makes you tie for first place. Um, Now, the tie would have been broken by whoever's models are most painted, and this person I'm talking about that ended up getting second, he still would not have gotten first place because none of his models were painted. They were like primed white or something. Um, and the person, Andrew, um, multi shorthammer champion of Highlander and Age of Sigmar, um, he got first place this year. Congratulations, Andrew. And all of his models were beautifully painted. So Andrew would obviously, on that tiebreaker, get first place anyway. So it really didn't affect the results of anything. But I did end up... So technically, it's weird, because I thought I tied for second, so I took third. But then come to find out, first and second technically tied, and I would have gotten second, because they both tied for first, but then the tiebreaker bumps the the unpainted guy down to second, so I'm still third. Ah, I flew too close to the sun. I almost got second. But, um, it was a very fun tournament. We ended up with, like, 12 people signed up, but we ended up with only 8 people playing, because, uh, two people had to leave early, they had to go home and um, two other people just no-showed. And that might sound weird if you don't run events, but people no-show all the time. <laughs> like, like all the time. The X-Wing had 12 people signed up, and they ended up having either 8 or 10. And the Underworlds had 8 or 9 people signed up. I think they ended up with 6. It's like, people are just so flaky. And the last minute, um, they're just like, oh, we'd rather go to pub trivia, bye, we're not doing Underworlds tournament. And that was two of the people for Underworlds. I'm like, gee, dude, you you know, you paid the money to be in the tournament. This person's running it. My friend Justin runs it. Like, you should just, you should just participate in it. But, ah, well, what do you do? You can lead a gamer to water, but you can't make him participate in the Underworld tournament. Anyway, many of you that were not at Shorehammer, actually the majority of you weren't at Shorehammer because we have listeners all around the world, including our mother flippin' overlord Mike over in the UK. But um, a lot of you are not going to Shorehammer, so I figured I'd give you an update. Remember how at the last minute, old Pimpcron kind of had the rug pulled out from under him because a friend said that he couldn't use the train suddenly after five years and many times asking if he could use the train? Well, I wasn't positive if I was going to be able to scrounge up enough of my terrain to cover all of these boards. Luckily for me... I had exactly enough terrain. So I had multiple friends, my friend TJ and James and Walt and a a bunch of other people saying, hey, we'll let you lend, you know, we'll lend you terrain or whatever. But 
Uh, my friend Mike, many, many people offered, but it wasn't until that Wednesday when we got everything set up that I found that I did have just enough terrain. Now, some of the tables were a little sparse compared to normal. We usually have a lot of terrain on the tables, but Age of Sigmar terrain tables were a little sparse. But the problem with Age of Sigmar, if you've ever ran an Age of Sigmar tournament, is that you really kind of have to have the tables sparse anyway for terrain, because many of the armies already bring their own terrain pieces, and a lot of those terrain pieces have minimum distances from other terrain pieces that they have to be, like no more than three inches or no more than an inch, or, or I mean, uh, no closer than three inches or an inch from other terrain. So it's like, well, by the time that both players put down their own terrain, and if you're like a Sylvanath player, you can generate more terrain, or if you're a Maggotkin player, you do more of the Feculent Normals, by the time that you do that a couple times, you really start cluttering up the board and there's no room to move models. So Age of Sigmar is a real tough time putting enough terrain down, but not too much terrain down, you know? So that, so we, because 40k doesn't have that problem, we gave most of the terrain to 40k and Age of Sigmar had lighter terrain, which is partially by utility and partially because we just had enough terrain. We usually have several terrain pallets. I mean, I've, there's been years where I had 10 pallets of terrain left over because I also had Bliggity Blam Steve's terrain. But this year, I did not have a single pa uh, terrain pallet that was still full of terrain. They all were empty. And we just barely made it. We did, we did have one mat left over. So, one. Whew. So that was very, very close. And it was a real nail-biter. But we made it through. Everything worked out pretty well. And um, I'm, I think it was a success. I really did. And of course, we raised money for the charity and all of that. So it was a very fun weekend. I always love to see my friends. And uh, it spurs me. It's funny because a lot of people are like burned out after Shorehammer because they play Warhammer day in and day out for like four straight days. And because I don't get to play a whole lot during Shorehammer, I'm like blue balling it. Like I'm like, oh man, I'm so ready to play Warhammer. So I get excited every year. It actually revitalizes my love for the hobby and the game. So um, I did get a pickup game. I did get one pickup 40k game, and that was against the, at the time, he wasn't yet, but he is the Shorehammer champion, Leroy Jenkins, who listens to the show and writes in and all of that. And um, he came in from many, many, many hours away, like eight or nine hours away he came in. And uh, he, he drove down with some buddies and we got to play a game where he was very, you know, when you hear his list being described, his competitive list, you would say, oh, my gosh, this guy's a power gamer. Um, but if you really if you truly listen to it, there is a lot of thought and strategy put into this list. It's not just, oh, take the best thing times three and spam it because, A, he couldn't do that in the Highlander. But B, he had multiple layers of guarantees that things will work out his way and it was all by design so I have a lot of respect for that even though lists are not really my thing making lists and all that um we played and he could not have been nicer to me he uh my my rolling was not that great but also I just took a bunch of units that I just liked <laughs> so <laughs> my reanimations practically did not happen with my necrons like I pretty much didn't roll any reanimations but I just threw together flayed ones and scarabs and lich guard and just threw together my favorite units. And I'm like, ah, this is the way I'm going to play. And he, st he didn't really stomp me. I think it was 35 to 25. It's like, nah, 
it's it's a decent win. But um, also he was going easy on me too. He, you know, I, I knew he was going. See, I can I can smell that from a mile away because remember, I'm the one that famously proposes that you go easy on people so that everybody has a fun game. Unless you're both trying real hard for a tournament, and this was just a fun game, so he went really easy on me. And and you know what? That's fine. I'm not too proud to take uh take charity, especially from. <laughs> Especially from the Highlander champion of 2021, that's for sure. Anyway, so I had a lot of fun this weekend, and I'm excited for next year. There's actually quite a few things that I want to change for next year as far as, like, the narratives. I'm going to change up the 40k narratives to probably just be a patrol detachment. My friend Jonathan and I were talking about that. And before I go any further, you know what? Sometimes the Pimpcron may misspeak and take things out of context, and this is a public service service announcement that I want to make about Shorehammer. I mentioned in the last episode that I do 99% of the work for the, the convention, etc., etc., and you can't trust people or rely on people to do stuff for you, etc., etc. But there are many, many people that deserve a shout-out, because even though I may be doing all the background work and all of that and the organization of it, I definitely do have help from several friends, and one person I did not mention, and unfortunately, you know, when I'm on stage at the award ceremony, I completely forgot to mention, but, and I, I hate that, but I should probably write down my speeches. The point is, is that Jonathan, my friend John, is the one responsible for the Highlander tournament package, and he put all of that together, he did all the thinking, he made the missions, he did all of that stuff, formatted it, and everything for me. And I truly do appreciate it because he's much more tournament minded and I am just, I could not give a crap about tournaments. So it really took a lot of work off of me trying to navigate this whole tournament scene with him making a much more professional and succinct tournament packet than we've ever had. And that was brand new this year and all because of him. So Jonathan, I did not at all mean to minimize what you've done. I greatly appreciate the tournament packet you made for us, and that is not one of my strengths, so I'm very happy that you did it for us. So I just wanted to thank him. Also, we have paint parties. My friend Matt is always helping us. Uh, TJ was a volunteer and also helps us with the paint parties. Uh, James is a volunteer every year. David volunteered this year. Um, our, Our friend Tim usually volunteers every year, but also comes to the paint parties. I would like to thank all of them for all of their help. It is it is greatly appreciated. Even my friend Josh came this year to a paint party and painted. So I greatly appreciate them coming in, volunteering, and chilling out for the day and all that. But they certainly don't have to do that. And especially TJ, David, and James, um, and my friend Max, coming down and spending their time this weekend to you know, help make sure everything runs smoothly and help set up all the terrain and you know, uh, be ringers for all of my events. I really couldn't do it without you guys. So I greatly do appreciate it. So as far as the running of the event, I have lots of help. Um, So what I said is not wrong about me doing all the back-end stuff, but maybe I didn't emphasize all the help that I do get enough, and I am very grateful for it. So thank you all very much for helping, and I think I am done groveling now, so I will move on to the next segment. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. I'm going to apologize right up front for this segment. When I imported his voicemail, 
it somehow changed the audio quality of my recording, which is a completely different stereo track. I don't know what's going on, but I also don't know how to fix it, so you're going to have to deal with it for this segment. Apologies. Welcome to the Tesseract Mailbox, and I am the Pimpcron, as you probably already know at this point in the show. So, we have not heard from our friend, my brother from another mother, Levi, in a while, and I'm happy to say that I have a voicemail from none other than Levi. So, let's get into this, and uh, it's, it's pretty entertaining. So, as a preface to this, in the beginning of his message, he's talking about wearing an Eagles jersey, and if you have not listened to the recent episodes, you'd be like, what on earth? Well, I made a reference to it when I was discussing another topic, and I was basically saying that, you know, uh, it was regarding the gamer that wore Nazi paraphernalia at a tournament, and I was saying that really, even beyond the whole Nazi thing, just completely covering yourself in, say, sports memorabilia is pretty obnoxious. Like, even if it wasn't one of the most hated groups in the world, the Nazis, um, it's really just not chill to do regardless. And I specifically mentioned the Eagles, because a lot of Eagles fans just love to wear Eagles jerseys. So this is what Levi is talking about in the beginning. Hey, Pimp Cron. Uh, this is uh, Levi's cousin from fucking Philadelphia. Uh, I heard you talking shit about the Uggles the other day on your fucking podcast. And that kind of pissed me off, dude. You know, it's okay to wear Eagles jerseys anywhere you go. And if you don't like it, I'll fucking throw a battery at your head. Anyway, no, nah, I'm just joking. I'm working on my Philly accent. Uh, just want to call in, check in. I keep meaning to call in, but then it's like Monday already, and it's too late. Anyway, what I wanted to ask you about is like uh, prices on models have gone up recently. Like everything's gone up recently, and I just wanted to get your like get your idea if the models of like Warhammer models in specific, like in specific, went down. Uh, do you think people would freak out still because now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, their uh, models aren't worth what they paid and they, like, feasibly couldn't resell them? Like, I don't know who actually does that. Um, you know, some people, I'm sure they do. Um, but, yeah, you think there would be a huge backlash if prices dropped? You think it would be bigger than, like, every time they get raised? I know that's what I was thinking about along with my Philly accent. So anyway, yeah, go birds. Bye. <laughs> uh, I, I got a real kick out of this. I appreciate it, Levi. I got a real kick out of this message. So, you know, that's something I've never actually thought about too much, is that if the prices went down on GW miniatures, would all of the people who... Think about all the retailers and all the eBayers and all these people that paid a certain price for it. If all of a sudden they cut the price, which I don't really foresee them doing, but if they did cut the price suddenly, then those people would actually be losing money on their product, and I think people would be mad. That's a very interesting idea. Now, I have thought of a similar idea before when it comes to points drops, because when points drops or, or points increases, they affect the number of points that you need to field an army, right? So... If the price increases in points, then you need fewer models, which arguably, as an overall trend, seems like people would be buying fewer models, arguably, because they need fewer models to field a 2,000-point army. But when they lower prices, lower points, then arguably you need more models, and I'm assuming there is an overall increase in sales. 
So I've thought of that before, but I've never actually dis- I've never actually thought about the actual price drop. So I definitely think a lot of people would be angry. I think a lot of on- online retailers, a lot of brick and mortar retailers would be very angry because they paid X amount for it, and all of a sudden their profits are being cut. Now on the other flip side of that, I think the markup for a store with GW stuff I think is forty percent. So you know, they're not going to drop it by 40%, obviously, so that you're not going to be losing all of your money, but you definitely will be making a smaller margin. But then again, immediately after that, the new stock that you buy would be also at a lower price. So I understand that goes around like that. I, uh, I think it would be a hiccup. I don't think people would be too crazy about it. But obviously, you know, the prices are going up and everybody loves to complain about that. But the prices are going up and partially that's inflation. Partially that's the exchange rate. The the U.S. dollar has been losing a lot of umph in the last 10 years. So even if GW's British prices don't go up, the U.S. ones are likely to. Because why should they take a hit on the chin because your country's currency is worth less than it used to be? There's no reason for them to do that. So you either need to buy their models or don't is essentially what their point of view has to be. Because if they're really worried about that and go, oh, gee, I don't want to raise the price. Well, you're making less and less and less profit per item you sell if you're keeping it at the same U.S. dollar rate and the U.S. dollar's value is dropping compared to the British pound. So that is how that works. And I don't blame them for raising it. Not to mention... What about all of the different issues they're having with, you know, distribution and the whole pandemic thing and all of that? And also the the great resignation with all the people quitting their jobs and they got to pay higher wages. Now, I, I know that's a big, big, big deal in the U.S. I don't know if that's a huge thing in Britain or not, but the U.S. is a is a seriously tough thing. But this is not a podcast where we discuss all of that super depressing reality stuff. You know, this is a fantasy podcast, or at least, I don't know, an, an escapism podcast. So let's stick with the positive stuff. Um, I have not seen the prices go up super high, personally. Now, I do know, and this has been a, a known thing for GW for quite some time, is all of their new models they release are at a new higher price point, And that's what they're doing. A lot of the old boxes... I know they've done some increases in boxes, but I think a guard box, 10 guardsmen is still 35 bucks, 30 bucks. Um, I, for a while, the witches for Dark Eldar was still like 2750 or something. And it's because it's an old box. It's 15 years old by this point, or at least 10 years old. But the new stuff, oh, you want the new Stormcast stuff, oh, you want all that. If you look at it pound for pound, it is a higher price. But honestly, that's just general inflation. I don't really... I'm not really worried about any of it, to be honest with you. I don't have to have these models. If they get to some point where their price is so prohibitive to play, I've already got nearly every army in the game. So I'm like, eh. And personally, it doesn't affect me too much. And all, also, even if it did affect me, I would just slow down my purchases, you know? Because I'm, gonna spend, I'm only going to spend X amount of money per, per let's say, month, right? I'm going to spend... 100 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or whatever your budget is. And if that gets me two boxes of stuff, okay. If it gets me one box, well, it just gets me one box. It's just either way, I'm not going to stop playing because of it. So anyway, that was a pretty good Philly accent. I'm not too far from Philly. I'm four hours, I think, from Philly. 
And that's not too bad of a Philly accent, Levi. So thanks for calling in. It's always a pleasure when someone finally calls in, calls the hotline. And uh, that number is in the show notes of every single show. I don't memorize it because hardly anyone ever calls it, but my buddy Levi did. All right, next segment. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. This is the Real Talk with the Pimpcron, and this is a bit of a change of pace for us, as you probably know. I don't normally talk about lists. It typically bores me to discuss lists, and, ah, oh, then I can have a six-inch aura, and, and then I can do this and that, and, ah, CPs, ah. No, I don't like that stuff. But this is a little different. This is technically a Tesseract mailbox from Shorehammer 2021's Highlander Champion our one and only Leroy Jenkins that listens to the program. So I wanted to share with you guys exactly what his list was, and more specifically, not really the list, but the thought behind exactly what he took and why he took it, and what is the role for each unit that he took. And that, to me, is much more interesting than, oh, I had four people with a chainsword and one person with a lightning claw, and etc., etc., etc. So... I know I've never done this before, but if this is popular and you guys like to hear this, then maybe every year I will interview the champion of Shorehammer and ask them what their list was and exactly what they did to win the tournament. Leroy writes, Hey Pimpcron, thanks for hosting Shorehammer last weekend. What a fun weekend. Couldn't have asked for a better environment. All three games in the Highlander were great and the narrative was really chill and just a blast to play. Here's a breakdown of the Jellybean Falcons. So... Those of you, probably the majority of you that don't know, I do skits on YouTube uh, twice a week at Pimcron, with one P, Pimcron TV, and that was in one of the skits without giving anything away. That was in one of the skits. So he's like that, and now he named his army for Highlander the Jellybean Falcons. So his list is HQ. Now keep in mind, this is a Highlander list, so he cannot have more than any of one single unit with the exception that he was playing Sisters of Battle and uh, they only have one troop choice and we require two troops. So they have to, unfortunately, take a second Battle Sisters unit. And yes, I know they have a new troop choice now, but that's this is too late for Shorehammer this year. But uh, anyway, he's Morvin Val, Celestine. Morvin Val, I think, is his chapter. I, I really, I can't, rec- that one doesn't ring a bell for me, but he has under HQ. Morvin Val and Celestine. His troops was a 20 Battle Sister squad with a Combi Plasma, four Storm Bolters, and a Cherub. How cute. His second troop squad was five Battle Sisters with a Multi Melta. Okay. Elites. 10 Sacrosants, Sacrosants with Halberds. Eight Arco Flags with Endurant is the leader. I don't know what that means. Sorry. Uh, Dialogus with a relic to cast two hymns, warlord trait of plus one to shield of faith and vulnerable, and a preacher. And finally, his heavy support slots were uh, retributors, two heavy bolters, two multi meltas, and two cherubs. I played them as ardent shrouds so they can advance and shoot with no penalty. They also get to reroll one hit or wound roll every time they are chosen to shoot or fight. The sacred right was plus one to advance and charge rolls, which pairs nicely with Argent Argent Shroud. 
<laughs> Secondary choices were to the last Val, Celestine, and Twenty Blob Sisters, and either Raise Banners or Stronghold. So that was the secondary objective choices he chose. Now, this is the beginning of his explanation for everything. Dialogus. I put her first because of what an important character she is. She is a buff machine that acts as such an anchor. She has a relic to intone two hymns and a warlord trade at the cost of one CP. Her buffs within six inches are plus one leadership, can increase or decrease miracle dice by one, making twos and threes useful. Warlord trait is plus one to shield of faith and vulnerable save, making it a five up aura. The him for plus one to shield of faith for one unit, making it a four up for one unit. Him to make H-I-M-N, him to make bolters auto wound on sixes and AP minus one at half range. That's pretty darn good. And a war him, which is plus one attack for a unit. Her job is to stick behind the big blob of sisters and just buff the rest of the army. Toward the end of the game, she can break off and hold an objective. The plus one to leadership combined with miracle dice manipulation means there is rarely a failed morale test, which can really add up. Morvin Val, the best character in 40k. She rerolls, I mean, I'm sorry, her rerolls are what make sisters work. Core units reroll hit and wound rolls of one within six inches of her, and she chooses one unit to reroll all hits and wounds. Wow, that is fantastic. She is a beast in combat, rerolling all to hit wound rolls in close combat and fights twice once per battle, and also has a heavy bolter and a two-shot missile launcher. Good God. As good as she is at shooting in melee, her key role is to buff other units. The rerolls are too powerful, and if they are lost, the whole army crumbles. She can be used as a counterpunch, but she really just is there to stay behind my lines and buff everyone else. Once... Most of her threats are removed. She can venture out and smash face. Miracle dice can be used to make 12-inch charges. Max charge is 12 inches, so you only need an 11 to get within engagement range. Sacred Rites adds an inch to charges. Dialogus adds one to your miracle dice, so you only need <laughs> so you only need to add up to nine on a miracle dice to make a 12-inch charge. Effectively, use a six miracle die, and you only need a four up for the charge. Wow. Add that on top of her 8-inch move, and you can slingshot her 20 inches across the board to steal an objective. She also can fight twice, so you can have some consolidation shenanigans to make it into an objective. You can make her extra tanky, can also be used on Celestine. You can use a Miracle Dice to pass a save. Use a CP reroll for a 50% chance to make her a 4-up save. Use a stratagem that lets you increase a roll by up to two by discarding Miracle Dice. Um, an example, turn a two into a four. And combine this with her two-up save and four-up involve and her ability to have incoming damage. And we might just want to call her Beef Supreme. <laughs> she is nasty. I'm, I'm reading this like, oh my god. Now, I know Cel Celestine is the next one. Celestine is um this one I, I'm pretty familiar with. Celestine. She came in the list as a to-the-last unit and for screening early objective-grabbing unit. The first time she dies, she can stand back up, which makes her incredibly hard to kill. She can heal herself as an action, too. I needed a way to get across the field, turn one, to score on Stranglehold. I have Sacrosance with the bodyguard rule to run up behind her so she can't be shot at. That way, she cannot be killed twice on one turn, barring Psychers. While she is doing this, she is also providing a screen for the army. 
With careful placement, it is difficult to assault the harder-hitting units behind her. The hope is after she is assaulted and she gets back up for your turn, she can then be hidden behind your line to save to the last points, or uh, save to the last points, or put her on the offensive into the enemy's back line. A really fun and rare tactic with Celestine, Celestine has a stratagem that can force all models in engagement range to attack her. You can charge Celestine and another unit, like Val or the Sacrosants or the Arco Flags, into a brutal unit you know you won't kill. If you can wrap them, you can get two turns of attacks from your other units to try and kill them since they have to attack Celestine the first turn, and then you activate first on their turn. Celestine can also use this defensively combined with her 6-inch heroic intervention to help protect the unit from a charge. Wow. Now, Leroy, obviously you have really thought about this. <laughs> this, is some, this is some prime uh, rule stacking. Next up is the, Cel the Sacrosants. What a versatile unit. They are bodyguards that protect characters durable with a 2-up save and 4-up involve and can be brutal in combat when buffed. They are another speed bump unit that runs out in front protecting Celestine from shooting and stopping charges from hitting my backline. If they are ignored, they can be buffed turn 2 for a devastating charge, plus 1 attack, and full rerolls. Miracle dice can be used for long charges on them too. They are not a premier close combat unit, but they can do work when applied properly. The Arco Flags. This is another versatile unit. They can be used as another screen or played as a counter assault unit. The Endurant Implants gives the leader one extra attack and Strength 6, which is such an important breaking point for wounding Toughness 3, 5, and 6 models. They can be buffed with the Priest for plus one attack and a Stratagem, each attack equals three attacks, to give them nine attacks each. Oh my gosh. This adds another unit that is fairly durable with their five up Feel No Pain and two wounds. They can even get a six up Invol if they're close to Celestine but can also deal de decent burst damage. Fully buffed, they get 75 attacks, hitting on fours, re-rolling with zealot, strength 5, AP 1, yikes. And he wrote yikes, and I'm now going to echo his yikes. It is utterly important to have realistic expectations for your units. Charging these into basic marines, each arco flag will kill about one marine. Charging them into the... into... Thunderhammer and Stormshield Terminators, sorry, he's using abbreviations, uh, Thunderhammer Stormshield Terminators, you might kill two and then get your teeth kicked in. Usually there's an apothecary near, so they heal one and revive one, and you just gifted them a dead unit. <laughs> so as scary as those attacks sound, they can bounce off a lot of the tougher units in the game. Sometimes it is better to run up and just stand in front of this tough unit to stop their movement for a turn rather than charge them. It sounds counterintuitive, but can really slow their advance. Now, Leroy, I'm going to pause this just for a second, and that is something I do a lot. If I am doing a last-ditch effort to stop a powerful unit, I just won't charge them. I'll just put a protest line in front of them and make them charge me, because I'm stopping their progress for a full turn. So that's, that's sound logic. Um, then the Priest. The Priest is a cheap 25-point objective holder and deep strike area denier. Can additionally cast Warham to give a unit plus one attacks. That's pretty good. There is a stratagem to auto-cast a him when you want the Arco Flags to hit like a truck. Any chance to remove luck from the game is a win. And that is the truth. 
Next is the Sister's Blob. The whole army is built around this unit and the stratagem defenders of the faith. If they're within three inches of an objective at the end of the movement phase, they can't be wounded on a one through three. And oh my, they get transhuman physiology next to an objective. That's nuts. And have rapid fire at full 24 inches. Combine this with full rerolls from Mornval and Blessed Bolts, which deals six mortal wounds. Also buffed by the Dialogus for minus one AP at half range and auto wounding on sixes. The rerolls and auto wounding on sixes make shooting toughness five up doable. Once you get within half range, the volume of shots combined with AP minus one is insane. Sisters storm bolters are two damage. Combined with that above, Jesus. Remember the whole army can advance and shoot for a movement of eight to thirteen inches. The sergeant has a combi plasma which you can overcharge because of rerolls. Defensively, turn one they start in cover for a two-up save in case I got I go second. They're wrapped if there are any potential if there's any potential for first turn charges. He means bubble wrapped. Once we play, Defenders of the Faith cannot be wounded on a one through three, because I guess he'll be near an objective, because he can run and shoot. A four-up involve from a him and a warlord trait. Cherub is used to help pass any morale tests you roll. You roll two die and choose one to use, which can be decreased by one by the dialogus. If both those dice fail, you have the die from the miracle dice pool, and if those all fail, then you still get to roll and hope for a one. There is a one CP stratagem for fall back and shoot, so make sure they don't get wrapped. This is another trap unit. They are so difficult to kill with shooting and are protected from assaults with the rest of the army. The Overwatch with full rerolls is brutal too. If you shoot them, the rest of the army is punching you square in the dick, and if you ignore them, then they are punching you in the dick. Seriously, why don't you wear your cup? <laughs> Classic Leroy. Small Sister Squad. They're an, they are an objective holder squad. I gave them a multi-melted just as one more unit anti-tank TEQ gun. I don't know what that... Anti-tank, I think, gets the point across. I don't know what TEQ is, Leroy. With the army rerolls, it's almost like a three-shot multi-melta since you can reroll one dice for free. This also makes them a small threat which you can't just completely ignore. The Retributors are the last unit in this. Move, advance, and shoot heavy weapons. Yes, please. Two heavy bolters, two multi-meltas, and two cherubs so the multi-meltas can shoot twice in one turn. They need to hide pre-game because if they're visible, they will die. Since they can advance and shoot, they can start behind the lines and still run out and have a good line of sight on whatever needs to die. They are unfortunately very squishy, so they tend to die early in the game, but they can hopefully pop an important target turn one. Within Val's aura, they reroll hits and wounds of one, plus one free reroll from army trait. They are a very reliable shooting unit. And this is his final closing thoughts. The army was built to make it so there is no good choice to shoot. There are no vehicles so that any anti-tank weapons have to shoot tough three models. The biggest threat is the big blob of sisters, but they are also the most durable unit. The rest are pretty equal on a threat scale, so target priority is extremely difficult. I think this army catches people off guard with how fast it is. The average movement for any squad is 10.5 inches with no penalty to shoot. This army is very CP-hungry, so prioritization of stratagems is important. The only time I can use a stratagem on a reroll is if Val is about to die or on a critical charge because I get more mileage out of everything else. 
there is no way to fit in all the tricks above, so reading the game and deciding which one to use, or if it's better to save CP for another move, really makes a difference. Each stratagem can turn the tide of the game, so wait for the biggest impact. Or, unload all CP right away for an Alpha Strike. I have done a similar analysis on all the units in the Codex. I don't do this for any other army. Sisters are my favorite faction, so I try to understand all the intricacies of the book. The Emperor protects Leroy Jenkins. So, for those of you, knowing my audience, I don't know how many of you were fascinated by this, or how many of you uh, have already turned off the program. <laughs> for me, and I am not a list person, for me, this was very interesting. And that's kind of I, why I asked him to do a write-up, because just, you know, listen to the, the champion of the tournament and see what his or her issue was. You know, like, what, what were their goals... What were their backup plans? What were that? And I think by this description, I think you can tell that Leroy had a bunch of backup plans. And none of them relied on a CP reroll except for extreme dire circumstances. Because that's still, as he said in the description, leaving things up to luck or fate is not a good idea. You want to make it as reliable as possible. Such as the rerolls to hit, the rerolls to wound, and all of that. So hopefully you enjoyed that. And... I think that is it for this episode. So I'll see you next week. And I apologize for missing last week because I was exhausted after Shorehammer. And uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you to GameMet.eu for supporting the show. And thank you to all of my beautiful, sexy, good-smelling Patreon patrons, including Leroy Jenkins. I will see you next week.